Welcome to Afternoon Light, the podcast of the Robert Menzies Institute at the University of Melbourne. I'm Georgina Downer and I'm the host of Afternoon Light and the CEO of the Robert Menzies Institute. The Institute is a Prime Ministerial Library and Museum devoted to upholding the legacy and vision of Sir Robert Menzies, Australia's longest serving Prime Minister. On Afternoon Light, we explore contemporary issues relevant to Sir Robert's life and legacy with leading thinkers from around the world. Thank you for joining us today. Hello and welcome to this first episode of season two of the Afternoon Light podcast of the Robert Menzies Institute. And today I am speaking to Jane Connors about the Queen's Royal Tour in 1954. And Jane is the editorial advisor at the ABC. She is an ABC veteran of 33 years and has a PhD in Australian history and is the author of Royal Visits to Australia. Fabulous to have you on Afternoon Light, Jane. Thank you. Lovely to be here. And Jane, this royal tour in 1954 was extraordinary and I can't wait to hear all about it. Just to to set the scene, this year, 2022, is the Queen, Queen Elizabeth II's Platinum Jubilee on the 6th of February. It will be 70 years since she acceded the throne after the death of her father, King George VI. And uh, two years later, she visited Australia in the first visit of a reigning monarch to Australia in its history. So it was absolutely extraordinary for Australia, the Australian people and has never really in its scale and enthusiasm been repeated since. So tell me about this royal tour of 1954 which of course from the Robert Menzies Institute's perspective is important because Robert Menzies was the Prime Minister at the time. And and very much involved in the tour. Uh, Look it was so long in the coming, in the making. I mean first of all Australia of course being the British colony and it was um, you know, more than a century, a century and a half since that uh, establishment. So there'd been a, a feeling that we needed sort of a, a mark of approval, a tick of approval from the British royal family. And at the time we'd been established as a colony in 1788, the royal family was not in fantastic odour and not for a lot of the 19th century, which people tend to forget now. But in the second half of the, of the 19th century, the British, I think, became much more canny about how they used the royal family to represent the family of nations around the... I mean, they had a massive empire by that point. They couldn't control it militarily. They needed to have people's effects and emotions very much uh, engaged. And so Queen Victoria, widowed, ageing, largely in uh, living in seclusion, was sort of pulled out back into the public eye to become the grandmother of the empire. And they started sending people out around the colonies. So the first royal tour was in 1860 when the Prince of Wales, who later became Edward VII, uh, was sent out to uh, to India to, to um, sort of you know, be part of a celebration of Britishness and the British family of nations there. And then we had our first tour in 1867 where Queen Victoria's second son, Prince Alfred, uh, came along. Um, and he uh, had a very wildly successful tour, like just hysteria just on the streets of the Australian cities. He was here for quite some time, but he was almost assassinated. He was shot at on Clontarf Beach in Sydney and only the depth of his India rubber braces saved a bullet from penetrating his heart. 
uh, and he was nursed back to healthcare. And when Sydney is full of monuments with Alfred, like Alfred Hospital, and it all comes from massive public subscriptions because Australians were so overwhelmed by the horror of nearly losing a member of the royal family. Was, and then was that an uh, Irish nationalist? Uh, I seem to recall. Been controversial um, as to he was certainly he was of Irish heritage. Joe Farrell. Um, Controversial as to how much he was part of organised Fenian activity and how much he was individually deranged. Really, you know, never been quite involved. But Maybe a combination was, um, of the two. <laughs> possibly <laughs> hung very quickly, and Prince himself had called for clemency uh, and oh, asked him really? not to be executed. But the New South Wales government had him strung up uh, very, very quickly. Uh, and then we have six more tours of senior members of the royal family. So we, well, actually, the third, the next one was two quite junior princes. And then we had the future George V and Queen Mary. Then we had the Prince of Wales. Then we had the Duke of Gloucester. So we get to World War Two, uh, and we still have not had a visit from a reigning monarch. Uh, Prime Minister Chifley invites the king and announces in 1948 that the king queen and princess margaret will come a lot of investment huge public and private investment in a tour in 1949 which is then postponed because of the king's very poor health uh, and by this stage robert menzies is prime minister and has the he, he is pressing for a visit in the early 1950s and uh, he gets 1952 so again the younger princess the king the queen are on their, uh, are meant to be coming and the king's health just breaks down again. You know, chronic smoker, I think he had a lung removed. So Princess Elizabeth, terribly popular with the Duke, with her young husband, uh, is on her way. And of course, he, the king dies. She's in Kenya. She has to rush home. But in her first announcement as queen, she promises the people of Australia and New Zealand that she will come. So she goes home for her coronation in June 53 and then in November 53 she sits off on a six-month journey Amazing. around the Commonwealth. Yeah, and of course we have contemporary representation of, of her father's death and her experience of that in The Crown, the series that has been so popular over the last few years. And, uh, I mean, I recall that that moment. She's in a house in Kenya, isn't she? And she gets the phone call that her father has, has passed. And, uh, and of course, the rest is history. But this, this tour, um, the Queen's tour in, in 1954 of Australia, I think it lasted for 57 days. And the Queen was the sort of first head of the Commonwealth. And so then, as you said, her, her tour took six months all, all up around these Commonwealth countries. I think it was Bermuda, Jamaica, Fiji, Tonga, Australia, of course, New Zealand, the Cocos Keeling Islands, Ceylon, Uganda, Libya, Malta and Gibraltar. I mean, must have been a massive, massive undertaking for her and her staff and her husband. But um, tell me about the experience of those 57 days in Australia. And I mean, particularly that first moment when she arrives, when I understand a million out of the 1.8 million people resident in Sydney turned up to, to Farm Cove where Captain Arthur Phillip had raised the British flag 165 years before her. A million people were there. It's, it's more than 50% of the population of Sydney. It's extraordinary. Yes, they were extraordinary numbers. The build-up, I mean, not only had it been coming since 1948 with those you know, interruptions, but you know, coming for so long. And I think it fed into every emotion in white Australia 
about that distance from the motherland, about the great colonial experiment, about the southern land, how successful we had been. So in the months, in the years leading up to it, a huge operation led by uh, people who uh, from the military who'd had all that logistical experience in World War II, um, winnowing an itinerary in the end of uh, all the capital cities apart Darwin and 70 country towns and massive rivalry. So the archives <laughs> are full of fabulous correspondence with the towns that missed out about how it was. How could we miss out? We've got the best airfields. We've got the best public toilets. We've got a park. You know, people putting their claims forward all the time. So, And, and school children have been learning about you know, the, the further around the coronation. So there were just records everywhere. So that the estimated radio audience for the coronation in June '53, 200 million people worldwide, and and you could you couldn't find an Australian who didn't sit up all night, and you know schools let children off the next day because they knew they would have been listening, and and private you know boarding schools you know, had the radios playing, the restaurants had the radios playing. Um, people knew the service; they could they could say it along with the Archbishop of Canterbury. They knew all of the regalia. Um, they had little um, models of the carriage and the ampulla and the anointing spoon and <laughs> coronation balls and coronation golf contests and coronation recipes. Coronation chicken. Just, absolutely. The famous coronation chicken salad <laughs> apparently she got very sick of it while she was here. <laughs> Word went out that she loved strawberry shortcake. She got very sick of that as well. <laughs> you know, just I, I had a look at, for example, the archival documents around Mount Gambia in a tiny town in South Australia, of course, and she was there for one hour and three quarters and they had 12 or 13 committees that met every week for a year and a half to make sure that that wow. visit would go off. Wow. The government, yes. Menzies even appointed a minister in charge of this royal tour and I think after, after um, the Queen had left in April 1954, it sounds like Menzies and his cabinet and, and probably the entirety of the sort of Australian government was so exhausted and he decided after that that royal visits wouldn't be as formal in the future given the work involved. <laughs> and they and they had another nine years to recover. The Queen didn't visit again until 1963. <laughs> I think everyone needed nine years to recover from that one and we'll never know how much it cost. And it wasn't an issue. No one ever, 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 no one I spoke to, no one ever raised an issue how much it cost, but it must have been in today's terms millions and millions of dollars. So... So she set out from London in November, a combination of plane and boat travel through, as you said, through um, down through Panama and the Panama Canal and then um, through Fiji and Tonga. Uh, and Australian journos were there all the way following her progress. And then she had a month in New Zealand, which was a very, very long month in Australia. We were very sick of New Zealand by the time that ended. Oh, really? So we were we were all quite jealous, were we? Oh, very, very, yeah. <laughs> Why is she wasting time in New Zealand when she could be here? <laughs> wasn't, that, wasn't that collegial around the rest of the, the Commonwealth? Okay. Um, so the morning of the 3rd of February, 1954, is the morning that the, uh, the Gothic, the boat she was travelling in, arrive in the morning uh, outside the heads um, and, and waits uh, outside as the, as the city... Uh, gathers itself, uh, and as you say, the best contemporary estimates from the police and the organisers is that roughly a million people came into the town. So they were everywhere along the harbour. There were even people crammed in the old monkey pits at Taronga Zoo. Anyone who had a boat was on a boat. The 
the water traffic police were having had hooks pulling people out of the way. My mother, who was 12 at the time, got up at four in the morning. They came in from Peakhurst in in Sydney. Uh, you didn't, you couldn't see a thing. I mean, she didn't see the Queen, but oh. she was there. She had that extraordinary feeling that history was being made. So people had stepped overnight. People had come hundreds and hundreds of miles with their children from places like Newcastle and right up through New South Wales to be there on that first moment when a royal foot, a reigning foot, would come down on Australian soil. So by the time uh, she transferred from the Gothic to a barge and and was on her way, Prime Minister Menzies was lined up with the Mayor of uh, Sydney, Pat Hills, Labor Mayor, who had the pleasure of welcoming the Queen. They were all elbowing each other, <laughs> Menzies and uh, <laughs> Premier Joe Carl had been fighting for months and, in fact, Carl had behaved so badly that Menzies had threatened to have been arrived at Jarvis Bay oh, right. on Commonwealth Territory uh, oh. to avoid <laughs> all of the nonsense going on in Sydney. People were just hopelessly overexcited. Yeah. Um, so she finally, the foot comes down, the ABC and the commercial broadcasters had all combined for the day and the whole country so is this moment when announcer Bruce Weber finally says, and her foot is down. <laughs> and it was, it's like it was the a moon silence. landing. <laughs> Oh, it was extraordinary, you know, wearing a little yellow sandal. And then uh, silence, like people remember this odd silence given how many people were there. And then suddenly this roar, absolute roar, um, because she was here. And and then jets flew over and she spoke in the voice she didn't like. Uh, gave her, you know, the, uh, it was welcome to Sydney and said how lovely it was to be here. And then they went on a parade at the city at night. Uh, there was a massive... Uh, Fireworks, including fireworks for Queen and Duke. You could see her earrings in the fireworks. And um, people were out till four in the morning. You know, people had been out for 48 hours. Extraordinary. <laughs> and sort of um, rivaling the end of World War Two and its celebrations are probably exceeding them by the sounds of things. Just uh, Well, they went on a measurement of garbage. So they, they had a measure of how much garbage had been collected in DVD after the end of war celebration, how much the Queen and the Queen beat it hands down. Like, <laughs> there you go. And then it went on for days. It just the fervor everywhere she went, people were hysterical, um, packed into tiny corners. So she went to David Jones, for example, in the middle of Sydney, uh, and um, the police had horses and people were nearly trampled. Um, faint, fainting was endemic. People were up on ladders trying to see it. Just, we're going to kill her. You know, this, and it was in the UK papers that our fervour was too much. You know, we were too <laughs> rough, too colonial, uh, too over the top. We'd exhaust her. She wouldn't come back in the best shape. She was just a young woman. It, it was just, it was mayhem, absolute mayhem. And and in the end, about they think seventy five percent of Australians would have seen her. So seventy five percent of That's eight the, million people. Um, who, which was the population of Australia at that yeah, time. Yeah, that, look, they're, again, they're contemporary crowd estimates. Yeah. Sorry to talk about you. There's no science, um, but they are consistent contemporary crowd estimates. And, of course, you had to um, – we had no television. Uh, if you didn't go out on the streets to see her experience this moment of history, it was just felt to be a moment of history. Uh, yeah. And the idea that you wouldn't – of course, there were people who were much others and there were people who didn't like but they, they really kept it to themselves so you could go and see the newsreels so every night the newsreels were sort of rushed 
or for the following day and you, you could see what was happening in other cities. But people wanted to see it. They wanted their children to see it. They wanted to be able to see they'd been, say they'd been there. So uh, it really was a get out on the streets or miss it kind of affair. Right. We're in a pandemic. We've been in a pandemic now for two years. So we're, we're familiar with infectious diseases and the impact they have on our daily lives. There was a, a polio scare in Western Australia when the Queen visited. I hadn't been aware of this and the impact that had on how the Queen got there and interacted. And um, it, it was really interesting reading this quote from Menzies about that and the preparations that were being put in place to protect the Queen and the Australian public, he said, if there is the slightest risk of infection to Her Majesty or a risk of added danger to the people, and in particular the children of Western Australia, and the medical authorities say there is, then it is unthinkable that any government should not act immediately on medical advice. That is what I have done. I thought you could have could have uh, had that quote today in 2022, <laughs> very similar yes, yes. Well, <laughs> pronouncements from really our political reading, leaders. <laughs> it was reading about the polio that made me realise the almost uh, the extent of the feeling because there was also polio in Victoria, um, in regional Victoria, and, and, you know, people, younger listeners won't realise how terrified Australian parents were of polio. It was yeah. an annual terror um, that your child would contract polio and be but when the Queen went through places like Maryborough and Castlemaine in Victoria, uh, where there was polio present, people came out in massive numbers. And in fact, that the, the idea was the train wouldn't stop. It was, you know, stops were not scheduled because of the fear of polio and the Queen acquiring it. And crowds weren't putting up with that. They were yelling, there's no polio here, what's going on? You've got to stop. And in fact, the trains did stop briefly to allow people to see the Queen. And then there was a scare when uh, it appeared that Kim Beasley's mother, uh, because Beasley's father, of course, was a federal politician as well, it appeared that, Queen, that Kim Beasley's mother may have had polio when she shook hands with the Queen at a big reception oh, right. in Canberra. And that was quite a fright, um, though nothing came of it. And then, as you say, in Western Australia, where there was definitely an outbreak, the Queen slept on the boat. Uh, she didn't stay in government house stepped on the boat and all of her food was very safe and prepared. In fact, I read somewhere that the grapes were washed in a saline solution Ooh, and no bouquets were handed over. So no shaking of hands, which must have been a relief because apparently she shook 13,000 hands while she was here. Um, and little girls laying bouquets, put them on a table rather than give to her. So, Aww. you know, the kind, same kind of distancing, exactly right, that we're seeing today. Yeah, it was really interesting reflecting on how pandemics have really been ever with us, even during a royal tour. Mm. Jane, I wondered if uh, I could ask you about popular monarchism, which you, you write about, Um and what that is and and why it was that Australians were so emotionally attached to the monarchy beyond just that constitutional role of a head of state. When I first started looking at this topic in the 1980s, I ran into a degree of ridicule from my friends about what a trivial topic it was. We were at the height of Diana and, you know, such a soap opera of the royal family. But I also ran into a lot of opposition from people from the constitutional end of the monarchist uh, who really want to, they, they want to get away also, or well, they did very much from the family, personal, tragicomic, women's magazine end of royalty and were very much about the constitutional aspects of it. Uh, but it, 
and the Republican movement, of course, um, was, was very prominent, but also very dismissive and, in fact, quite contemptuous of what they saw as a sort of a popular, sobby and, and largely female interest in yes. the more trivial aspects of the royal family. And, and I just think that's a really wrong way to look at it. I think you just have to assume that people... But if people are finding pleasure in something, you have to understand and appreciate what that pleasure is coming from. And I think in 54, with the, I mean, there was a lot of stuff in 54 about how it was women uh, who were fueling this. And the Republican movement in the 1960s was very angry with women for what they saw as a slavish interest in the royal family. But I didn't find any evidence. I found men fawning over the Queen every step of the way in 1954. But I think one of the things there was the extent to which people grew up with the royal family. Uh, and, and very much, I think, the World War II was very influential. So the Queen was born in 1926 and became immediately the most famous little girl in the world. So you, you would be given picture books of Queen's year in review for your birthday and for Christmases. She would be in the, the nascent women's magazines, uh, newsreel footage of the princesses, annuals, all this part. And then you then you did all the constitutional history at school. And then in World War II, I mean, it's a very well-known story about how the royal family stayed home while a lot of the aristocracy departed London uh, and the bombings. The royal family stayed at Windsor Castle and occasionally at Buckingham Palace and the king and queen went into the East End and they toured lots of the people had lost their houses and it was incredibly effective. And and the young princess Elizabeth joined the auxiliary transport service and was in uniform, didn't, you know, obviously young to go and serve, but she, you know, learnt, she did her duty uh, and they were seen as very, very beautiful, good People and they were seen as quite middle class. They managed not to be seen as very aristocratic, which I think was a genius stroke on the part of the Queen Mother, who really did understand images and imagery. So they were just everywhere. And then, so, and so when the war ended, they were very much associated with the victory. Right. Um, yeah, and then, right. and then the, then the young princess got married, and that was a symbol of the world returning to normal uh, and love. And then there were young children. And then the father died and people remembered how staunch he'd been during the war. So you, you did have this emotional upwelling. And then I do think you had very much this connection, uh, that, that, that thing about the British Empire and the white family of nations really did work. You know, because a lot of people still saw England as home, even if they had never been there or, and would never get there. So you've got all of that happening in 54 and it ended, you know, Five years later, so much of that was gone, but it was absolutely there in 54, right at the end of the war period. You know, we'd not come long out of rationing. We still had a lot of people demobilising. You know, the, there was a feeling, one of the most emotional parts of the tour were around um, the war dead mm. and the ceremonies of remembrance and the shrines of commemoration where veterans were brought on stretches, veterans who could no longer walk, who, and, and in couple of cases, veterans who'd fought back to the Boer War were bought, carried on to the four courts, shrines of remembrance, and people just cried yeah. to see them um, and to think about that sacrifice. And the royal family was so much seen as part of that. Well, and, of course, that, that sense of grief and loss and tragedy would have been so raw for people um, in mm. 1954. Mm. It would have been, what, just yeah. nine years yeah. since the end of the war. Uh, you know, so still many really present close relationships would have 
would have been you know, tragically affected by by the war. I wondered when you when you're talking about women and women's affection for the Queen and the monarchy, and there was a sort of a, a, like a gendered lens that this was seen through. Can you um, explain that a bit more? Because I mean, certainly these days. You always see when you're at the supermarket, the news agency, the women's magazines with lots of, you know, photos of um, Kate and <laughs> Eugenie and Beatrice and, of course, now Harry and Meghan and the, the trials and tribulations of, of their time in, now in California. Uh, it, it definitely has these days a flavour of more of a women's focus um, in terms of interest. But, but as you said previously that there was an equal interest on the part of men and particularly I guess that sort of military defense aspect but how how did you see in your research as a gendered phenomena or not? No look I mean there were gendered interests of course I mean one thing to remember is of course the coverage was much more respectful and there were very strict in fact even uh, written agreements between us and the media Right. Um, about what could be covered. For example, you couldn't publish a photo of the Queen eating or drinking. Um, it was that strict. And my great triumph as a historian is that I uncovered the story of the Queen and the Duke having a row when they were on tour in Australia, which was inadvertently filmed by the cameramen who were following her around the country on an authorised film, which was then exposed because they, they just couldn't bear the idea of... Um, having this sort of what we now see as you know, invaluable paparazzi footage of a royal domestic. Um, oh, really? So there was, there was such respect. Um, <laughs> so how did you uncover this, given it was exposed? Well, it's a, <laughs> it is my great triumph, Georgina. It's a scene in The Crown, um, and I spoke at length to the historian working on this series. So I interviewed a, a man who was quite elderly at the time in the 1980s uh, called Lock Townsend, who had been uh, had fought in the war but had gone on to become a cameraman and, and quite eminent director for the Commonwealth Film Unit. And the film unit had been charged with making an official film of the Royal Tour, which was later, um, it was later um, released with a script by George Johnson and narration by Peter Finch. It was a big deal and it was the first full-length colour film production in Australia, even though we couldn't process colour film and had to be sent overseas. Lock Townsend and his uh, cameramen were following the Queen around and they were given, they were filming public events, of course, but they were given some access to more private moments. So they were waiting at a chalet. The Queen and the Duke had a rare day off and they were staying in a very secluded chalet in regional Victoria and they were coming down to look at koalas and the team were going to film them with koalas uh, crawling all over them. And they, they didn't come. They just didn't come. And they're waiting and waiting and waiting. And suddenly there's a movement from the house. And the cameraman had been an old movie tone cinematographer and he just had instincts. So he just turned his camera on and started filming. And next thing, the Duke of Edinburgh is running across the grounds with a big sand shoe and a tennis racket flying after him. And the Queen is yelling at him and throwing these things. And they're having a right old domestic. And it's all on film. And then they, they I do they remember this scene the from the crown. <laughs> um, and uh, and so then they retreat into the house where they've been filmed and not, and then Lock Townsend realizes this they, they don't want that footage, it's too hot, it's too personal, it's there's no place for it, there's no market for it, it would never be incorporated in this film. So he uh, is thinking about how he'll have to get rid of it when the media officer comes bellowing down the 
bomb that no one liked very much. You know, you oh, you know, what have you done? You, you disrespect, you kind of this. And Locke pulls the film out and exposes it in front of him and oh. gives him the footage and says, you can take this to the Queen so she can see that we will not be using it. And she then came down and apologised and said thank you and they had a, a glass of cordial together and filmed the koalas. Uh, <laughs> so that is my great clue as a historian that I was given that story. Amazing. Uh, I only have Locke's word for it, but I really believed him. He was a very upright man. And, uh, yes, the, the Crown people loved that story and put it into the... Well, it's totally understandable. This six-month tour and they were day in, day out meeting thousands and thousands of people. It would have put any relationship to strain. I mean, I don't think anyone can blame her for, well, maybe not the the domestic violence aspect, but but certainly having a strained moment between the couple would have been... Yes. They are human. Ultimately, they are human. Jane, I wanted to talk to you about this sort of idea that that being a fan of the monarchy or interested in the royal tour and the you know the queen was a and that sort of admiration for the monarchy was that a middle class phenomenon um i mean australia obviously you know very different society from britain you know much less of a sort of you know class class structure but um, that, that idea that the sort of Menzies forgotten people were the ones who were mad about the Queen visiting rather than the sort of working class of Australia, what, what did, you, did you uncover in your, in your research? I'll just say first, Georgina, I'd love to come back to Menzies specifically uh, and the gender issue, but oh, just yes. to answer yep. that question, because yes. um, that was me, I diverted you. Look, I, I did go looking for it. Uh, I, I assumed there would have been opposition, indifference, amusement. We had, you know, we had that the working class in Australia at that time so often had an Irish inflection as well. Yeah. Um, so you had all of that history, that anti-monarchist history. So I, I really went looking for it and I couldn't find a lot of it. Um, so there were, I did hear some people who went to schools with Irish brothers where there was much less attention paid to it than some of the public schools or the more conservative private schools. But in the end, everyone lined up. I never I never heard of a school which didn't in the end go out to look at the Queen and where you know, the constitutional aspects of the monarchy were not being taught in class, was so much part of the curriculum. I, I, I spoke to people who have been in the Communist Party and they sort of said, look, you know, we thought it was ridiculous and the amount of money being spent, but it would have been an absolute mug to put your hand up at the time. I, I found a woman whose parents had been very active communists in Newcastle, but they actually went to a ball for the Queen and Anne, their daughter, took part in a display on the Newcastle showground. They, they had no thought of stopping her for it. I spoke to Tom Keneally's younger brother, John, who said that, you know, their family were left and they weren't that interested in the royal family at all, but... You know, in the end, they sort of went along with it as well. So I think that's, I think the, the, the most you got was people who were a bit tepid, probably people got a bit irritated, uh, when is this going to end? But <laughs> there was really nothing, there would be nothing you'd well, call The Queen was thinking, when is it going to end? Certainly the Duke was. Yes, true, true, he was. <laughs> At that point, but... um. The figure of Robert Menzies was so pivotal to the tour. And when you asked me about gender and about women, well, I mean, the, the greatest popular monarchist of them all was, was the Prime Minister. Uh, yes. He always loved the royal family. And in his diaries in the 1930s when he'd been in London, he'd recorded 
where, where he'd been to parades, you know, with features of the royal family and saying, you know, these are bad days for the Reds because, you know, this royal family is so popular. And he had just been sweating on these tours and had a very, very strong presence in the weeks and months leading up to it, writing articles, editorials, opinion pieces um, about the value of the royal family and the and the monarchs to our way of life and our place in the Commonwealth, even though we know that Menzies um, was not a huge, you know, was love that transition from Empire to Commonwealth, but um, certainly talking it all up uh, very much and, and drawing people to what he saw as the right things they should be celebrating. Um, very, very keen on being as a person standing next to, like, there's barely a photo where he's not standing next to, like, a benevolent uncle. Yes. Um, looking very uh, <laughs> proud of her. When he uh, presented her with a wattle brooch in the, at the Great Ball in Canberra, you could tell it was just like the apogee of his career. You know, he just saw it as, I mean, the thrill of being Prime Minister when the Queen was here was almost too much for him. He, he got was quite naughty. I mean, there were uh, a lot of debates. I mean, the left got themselves into a bit of a tangle over things like what clothes to wear. So Arthur Caldwell in the Labor Party refused to wear a top hat for example, and, and so in one of his weekly columns, uh, Menzies wrote about you know, how it was just proper. It wasn't, you know, showing kowtowing or grovelling. It was just wearing the right clothes for the right occasion. So he, he did engage a little in all of this, but it was it was his moment. It was his absolute moment. And people, um, one of the great misconceptions I found when I was researching my thesis was that his I did but see her passing by speech. People thought he'd made it in 54. No, 63, uh, wasn't didn't. it? Yeah. Made it in 63. And that's why we remember it. I think if he'd said it in 54, it would have been so much part of what everybody else was saying, so much part of the emotion of that tour. You barely have noticed it. But because he said it nine years later when the world really had changed, it just it seemed very mawkish, inappropriate yeah, at that time. Yeah, and sort of a bit anachronistic, yeah. Um, yeah, very much so, um, but... It, it, there's, a, there's a wonderful quote from Menzies about him describing the importance of the monarchy to Australia and, and Australian society from the 1954 visit, which I think captures a lot of what you've just said, Jane. And he says, It is a basic truth that for our Queen we have within us, sometimes unrealised until the moment of expression, the most profound and passionate feelings of loyalty and devotion. It does not require much imagination to realise that when 8 million people spontaneously pour out this feeling, they are engaging in a great act of common allegiance and common joy which brings them closer together and is one of the most powerful elements, converting them from a mass of individuals to a great cohesive nation. In brief, the common devotion to the throne is a part of the very cement of the whole social structure. I think that's incredible to, um, you know, I mean, you cannot imagine that 70 years later being said no, of the monarchy, no. but it just gives that impression of the importance of the Queen as a figurehead bringing the whole of the nation together uh, and, and creating that idea of Australian identity and, and nationhood. Look, I, I think it was true and untrue yeah. uh, as, as these great moments are. I think there there is a lot to that and people certainly thrilled to that and felt that this is what makes me an Australian, it's part of it. And and um, even, you know, I spoke to quite a few people who'd been migrants at the time who were, were in their way, it didn't really matter what their personal politics were. They did 
like I, I spoke to a woman who'd really escaped Mussolini, mm. uh, and she felt she her politics were quite uh, progressive, but she felt to come to a country where the symbolic leader was the benign young woman in a nice sun frock was actually a lovely thing, and it mm. made her feel safe. Mm. Uh, and that she'd come to a, a country where things wouldn't go wrong for her. So there was a lot. There was a lot in that, and I, I think he was right to to a certain extent. But of course, there was a lot of frivol. There was a lot of frivol as well. You know, people wanted to see the fox. Oh, of course, they wanted to see the still you know, do the, the young mum still do and, um, <laughs> exactly. So it had every, it had everything. I think you know people had been starved of clothing for so long. You know, people had, had rationed clothing, and the Queen had. Very sensible day clothes. They were, I mean, they weren't really like yours and mine. They were properly made and they had gold threads in the hem so they wouldn't blow up in a breeze. They were, they were very structured, but they looked like our clothes. Uh, and then she had these extraordinary uh, gowns at mm. night and, and, the, and the jewels, founding jewels. And pe- there were replicas of the jewels in, in shops all around the country and people queued to see the replicas. And when they saw the real thing, they were just overcome with the flash of diamonds and emeralds and sapphires going past so it had, it had everything really i think yeah and of course that beautiful portrait that was um taken of her in the wattle was it the wattle gown that she wore it's just uh very dramatic and um i guess ev- evocative of of that importance of fashion and clothing choice in that soft diplomacy it's you know, yes, and to yes. this day i know the royals royals uh, use that to great effect Jane, there was an election in 1954. How do you think this royal tour contributed to to Menzies' success in that election? No doubt quite a bit by the sounds of things. (laughs) Look, look, I'd imagine so. Very complicated by the Petrov affair. So the Queen had barely left the country. She she left at the very beginning of April and I think six days after she left Petrov. And in some ways it was like the tour had never happened. So the beautiful glow just washed away immediately in a, in a storm over uh, the Cold War and the extent to which we had or hadn't been infiltrated by communist Russia. So in some ways, I think Menzies would have thought he would have had a much longer glow post to a period uh, and it just descended uh, very, very quickly. So it, uh, that complicates it. Um, but I, I, I suspect that there would, you know, if, if there'd been a feeling of wanting to preserve what people saw as the best about Australia uh, and therefore the Prime Minister who appeared to be presiding over it, uh, I think that feeling would have been reinforced by the tour. So I imagine it did give him a positive um, impact, but not quite as he would have imagined. No, although that sense of stability association with um, a popular queen um would have would have stood him in very good stead and uh, especially with when people were faced with concerns about the threat of a fifth column and and, communism in general um yes that would have been a a stark contrast (laughs) to what they just experienced and what they were currently experiencing yes you can only think so Mm. that must have worked Thank you very much, Jane Connors, for talking to us about the 1954 Royal Tour, the amazing efforts the Queen and the Duke of Edinburgh went to to tour around Australia for 57 days and, of course, the the role and and, uh, impact Robert Menzies had on that tour and, of course, on his political fortunes thereafter. So thank you very much for joining us on the Afternoon Light podcast, Jane. Pleasure. Thank you for having me. 
The Afternoon Life podcast is brought to you by the Robert Menzies Institute at the University of Melbourne. You can find more about the Institute and our podcast at robertmenziesinstitute.org.au. We're also on Twitter, on Facebook and LinkedIn. We look forward to you joining our show next week. Thank you.